Dear God, thank you for giving us this time together to uh, learn more about your word and to strengthen and encourage us for the week ahead. Please help this uh, be a time that we can come together and really dig deeper into what what these um, what, what the Bible really means and these, these things that we know are true and that we've heard a lot of the time but sometimes just don't know the deeper meanings of them. So give us this time to ponder that and uh, please help this be a strengthening time for the Ask these things in your name. Amen. So, when I go to pick a psalm in the morning, oftentimes I I ask Karen, I say, hey, help me pick a psalm. And then I I trump her at the last minute. Um, But I was wrestling around with uh, a psalm that really uh, tries to capture where we're at in chapter 11 of John. How many know what chapter 11 of John is about. This is something that's captured only in John, but you see the same kind of miracles uh, in a couple other places. This is uh, where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so in trying to, you know, looking for a psalm about um, resurrection and life, and not in the context of Messiah, that he would be resurrected, um, but in context uh, of ourselves, that the promise to us is that we will have resurrection, the very resurrection that Christ is, the very life that he is, that that's a promise to us, that we'll have eternal life, and that uh, we'll be raised. And so there are actually a lot of Psalms that talk around that, but it has to do with the, the intimacy that we have with our Lord who's life-giving. So um, I, I figured we'd go to Psalm 121 this morning. I know we've used this psalm a lot. I have a lot of favorite psalms. This is one of my favorites. Um, the, the word that's repeated in Psalm 121 is, uh, is to keep or um, to um, guard. That the Lord is our is our keeper, our guard. He's the one that that protects us and holds us in. And so I thought, let's go ahead and uh, start with Psalm 121. And that's the the context that was in my mind. Is it's all about the intimacy that we have with our Lord. We want to read it out. I live with my eyes to the hills, where my help come from. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who is watching over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade and your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all that harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your comings and going, both now and forevermore. Amen. So how many believe that? The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So where are we at in John? And why would I set this kind of a context? Uh, with Psalm 121. And I, I gave you hints. That's right. So John is about uh, knowing who 
who Christ is and knowing not not just in an abstract way but in a very experiential way there's two words for knowledge uh, well there's more than two but two primary words that are used that are translated to know um, one has to do with what we understand in our head and another has to do with how we actually uh, appropriate that as reality within our heart the basis of our belief and that we are to know who the Christ is, we are to believe, and uh, in belief, we want to understand what that means. And that um, if you've seen me trace out the uh, how we move through um, life, and you know, we experience uh, the result of our actions daily, I call that our destiny, right? So you're living out your destiny right now. If you want to affect your destiny, you have to kind of go backwards. You have to look at what are the habits that you keep that form that, that daily destiny. And the habits are made up of the actions that you take. And the actions that you take are made up of the choices that you make. And the choices that you make are made up of the thoughts that you think. And the thoughts that you think uh, actually come out of what you believe to be true about the nature of reality and the things that you value. So it gets all the way back to the heart. And there, you know, you can put a couple of other things in there to help kind of flesh that out a little bit. But basically what, we're, what we do every morning when we get up and consciousness runs through our brain and says, do I want to get out of bed or not? And uh, as you get older, uh, Lord puts physical impetus to get up because, you know, you don't want to lay there and explode. So, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, but at that point, you're engaging in the, in the reality of the day. And what you do, a lot of times, is, is a habit. It's a pattern. It's what you do. And you want to take a look at, well, if those patterns are good, do I want to keep them? If they're not good, do I want to change them? And you have to go all the way back and really challenge what you know and what you believe. And what John is about is he says, you know, everything's about, about the Christ. He's the center of reality. And so he wants us to know who Christ is. He wants us to believe in him. And that that should change us. And that the way that it changes us is that we would follow him. We would abide with him. And the word abide is often translated uh, remain, uh, to live with to uh, endure with. All of those are the same uh, idea. And we see that in John's thesis statement in John 20, 31. And I, I told you I would, I would read it every week. And so I'll read it again this week. So if we look at John 20, 31, this is, you know, you look at what are, uh, what are specific verses that we would memorize. You know, we're not like scribes. We don't have an oral tradition today. So we typically don't memorize large chunks of of text. Rather, what I would like to do is I would like to memorize in my life the things that help bring me back to center, bring me back to, to Christ. So I read in John 20, 30, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he has a very specific objective and what we're going to look at this morning is um, what's often 
considered the seventh sign in John. So there were specific signs. If you look at how, uh, if you organize John around uh, the signs, so if we look at, at the organization of John, you've heard me talk about this, and I know I repeat it every week, um, that there's a, an introduction, but then there's this whole public ministry part that occurs. And that the the public ministry is often uh, characterized as the book of signs. You know, I've organized it around the things that Jesus challenged. So he was challenging specific beliefs, and he was challenging specific values, because he's talking about the issues of the heart. He's talking about life and death. That's what our king came to do, was to deliver us from the greatest enemy. And uh, so I've organized it around specific challenges that Jesus made against institutions and against uh, the organization, the organizational expression of religion, the festivals uh, of the Jewish people. But many people organize it around the signs. So what were the signs that Jesus did? The seven signs in John. We're going to talk about the seventh today, so you're off the hook on that one. Uh, what were the first six signs? Water and wine. What was the next sign that Jesus did? It's okay, you can cheat. You can use your Bible. This is an open book exam. Open book exam here. So there was the uh, the water into wine. Pardon? At the temple. Yeah, there was cleansing of the temple. There was the living water. So are those are those signs or are those declarations? I would say those are more declarations. How about pardon? The healing. Yep. Yep. The 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 uh, healing we read about in uh, in chapter five at Bethsaida, and uh, that was noteworthy because the guy had been sick for a long, long time, and he had a particular uh, understanding of reality that he had to be moved into the pool when it was stirred in order to be healed, and Jesus uh, challenged that and healed him after 38 years, but he did it on the Sabbath, right? You think, well, 38 years, he had a lot of days that that man could have been healed, but no, he chose the Sabbath. Um, what, are, what are some of the other signs? Feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000, Yep. Another sign. Walking on the water. water. How about another sign? Yep, the healing of the man born blind. Right, so if you count those up and you go through um, those different signs, you'll count six major acts. And sometimes people want to organize this around the, the signs, which is why it's sometimes called the book of signs. I look at it as the, the, uh, the public ministry of Jesus, that he was doing specific things. John says, you know, there are many other signs I could have written about, but these I wrote about because I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you have eternal life, right? So that's, John chose these seven in particular which have to do with creation, which have to do with um, healing, 
infirm, doing things that could never have never been done, healing a man born blind, right? Feeding 5,000 with some barley loaves and some fish. You know, with a sack lunch, he fed a whole, uh, a whole host of folks. Walking on water, that he had power over creation, that he could calm the storm. Right? So these types of things are all about not so much that, um, I mean, they're definitely expressions of the, uh, the omnipotence, the power of God. Right? And also the omniscience of God, and that he knew, Jesus knew, and indicated that in certain instances, what was going on in the situation that other people couldn't have known. So you see the attributes of God expressed in these signs. But I think it also gets to the root of, okay, what do we know about uh, Jesus? And what do we know about God? And that brings us to the last um, sign that we're going to see in Jesus' public ministry, which we read about in John chapter 11. And I'm going to go ahead and read through all of chapter 11. This is uh, a story. We all have story in our life, and, and story is a way of communicating. Um, you know, when you sit down and you watch the news at night, if you do that, it's kind of depressing. And they, they give you these little stories, right? And they'll tell you about who the characters are in the story, and they'll tell you about the plot of the story, and they'll tell you about um, the setting of the story, and all of these things, right? So that's, that's just an, a way that we communicate. That we call it a story um, doesn't in any way inform us about whether it's true or not. So when you look at this kind of communication in narrative literature, one, you want to look at all of those elements of that kind of literature, like I just mentioned, setting, plot, characters, uh, the overall theme. You want to understand all of those things um, because you want to know what the story is telling you. But that doesn't inform you as to whether the story is true or not. So the question should always come up in the course of uh, interacting with the story, is it true? Is it true? And what you've seen is that the, as we got to the end of uh, this public ministry of Jesus, that there were specific points where Jesus turned to people and said, do you believe this? Is it true? Is it true and so what? Are you going to make this part of your belief in what you value? Right? So God's not going to let you sit um, and just coast through life. He's going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to have to choose. And he wants to um, unfold the truth for you such that you can know and believe the truth. And that truth is Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read this story this morning which takes place in four scenes. So keep that in mind. That's how it's organized. Um, and this is the, the, like I say, it's the last miracle. So that means there should be something in here that is the pivot point of all of Jesus' public ministry. This is where the golden nuggets are. I mean, there are golden nuggets all along the way. But this is, there's a huge one in here. It says, now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. <clears throat> so the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. <clears throat> but when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, 
but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. After this, he said to his disciples, let us go up to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are you? Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees. Uh, he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said after... <clears throat> and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came uh, where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. 
but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Let's go ahead and stop right there. We'll, we'll continue the, the, the conspiracy, the, the unbelief um, that follows. But let's take this story <clears throat> apart by scene. So, since you're all um, students of the Bible, and that's why you're here, what are the four scenes that we see? It's easy because they're kind of broken out by paragraph. We could have a Bible paragraphs. <laughs> well, the first one is where Jesus is down. Uh, where was where was Jesus at? Because uh, let me show you where on a map where some of these things are. Okay, so I'm going to give you some context here. Okay, so here's Israel. Israel from up here. Uh, in the area of Dan, all the way down to the Negev in the south. Um, I can't tell if that's in focus or not. Well, I don't know where they are right now. Uh, is that in focus? Yes. Okay. It's not for me. So, uh, so this is the Sea of Galilee, and this is the area of Galilee. A lot of Jesus' ministry was here. This is also what they call uh, Perea or the, the Decapolis region, right over here on this side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and Jesus, a lot of what we've read about Jesus' ministry before he went to Jerusalem occurred Excuse here. Me, yes. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as we read through the story, we had the Galilean portion of Jesus' ministry, and typically <clears throat> the gospel accounts take, uh, if you look at the other, uh, what they call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they focus the, the first part of their discourse um, on Jesus' ministry in the north. And then they talk about his final uh, ministry in Judea, in Jerusalem. And so that they'll basically give you the idea that Jesus was only up here and then he you know, came down in his last days of his ministry down here. That's not the case. We read in John, he's going back and forth all the time. So what had happened is we read about the man born blind, and then what occurred after that, the, the festival uh, of, of Feast of Dedication to Hanukkah, where he basically uh, chastised the unbelieving shepherds and pointed out that, that he was the good shepherd and that what his mission was, um, was to bring life and bring it to the full. Right? So he, uh, again, was challenging the religious system of the day. That took place down here. And at the end of that, as we read at the end of chapter 10, it says, uh, in verse 40 of chapter 10, it says, He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. So, Jesus was here. I'm going to zoom in now a little bit. Because well, we want to understand setting because it's important. Um, so Jesus was down here. 
Now you can see, yeah. Uh, he was down here. This is the Jordan River coming down. Uh, very lush area, even today. Uh, this is where they grow a lot of their produce. The dates from this region are the best anywhere in the world, in my opinion. Um, and he was down here uh, by the Jordan River where John had been baptizing. This, that was, I mentioned last week, kind of a bookend. So the, up to this point, he started his ministry here um, where John the Baptist had baptized him and then pointed out that this is the Lamb of God, this is the one you're supposed to follow. Everything that we read up to that point took place in these episodes going north-south, north-south, north-south the whole time. And at the end, he ended up back down here. That's why I said that's like a bookend. And then we have this seventh sign. And so he was down here by the river, and up here, I'm going to see if I can zoom this in a little bit so you can see some titles. Um, you can kind of see it. I don't know if you can really see it. Um, so right here, it shows... Uh, the Mount of Olives, and it shows Jerusalem, and there's a valley hit right here. This is called the Kidron Valley, and on the south side of Jerusalem is the Hinnom Valley. You go up and over the Mount of Olives, I should probably turn off the titles, because that way you'd be able to see um, this ridge here. But there's actually a ridge, and all the pictures that you see of Jerusalem, um, usually they're taken from this area, from one of these tops of this ridge, either here at uh, Mount Scopus, looking over at Jerusalem, and you see the big gold dome uh, mosque that's there today. Um, or it might be on Mount Olives, Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley to uh, the, the high wall of the temple, the corner between the Kidron Valley and the, and the city of David. Um, and those are usually the shots you'll see. Well, the traditional road out of there was out of the eastern gate of the temple which is where the next scenes are going to take place. Jesus is, uh, when he comes back to this area, he's going to actually go in the eastern gate into the temple area. That's where the final week of his life is going to play out, is in the temple mount area. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But in this case, when he left, he left Jerusalem, went over the Mount of Olives through uh, the town that Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived in. And so Jesus had a close relationship with these folks. And then he headed on down to this Jordan Valley. So that's the, the setting of where he's at. That they had to send uh, a runner, or someone, they weren't actually a runner, because uh, you don't run in the heat, but they sent a messenger from this area right here outside of Jerusalem all the way down to where Jesus was. So I can tell you that from, from right about here, at the bottom of this ascent, going up to Jerusalem, because that descent is still there today. It's a traditional roadway. Uh, the Romans uh, were the first to really widen that and make it a, a, a great road, uh, but it was there from the time of the patriarchs and before, because that's the natural way through these very rugged hills. So this ascent, called the uh, ascent of Adumim, is about 20 miles. So if you were to walk that, which they would do, because there isn't much in between. It's a very arid place. It's not like there's great villages in there. Um, you basically have to get in the area of Jerusalem before you start running into anything. So you would that would be a day's journey. Minimum of a day's journey to do that 20 mile ascent. And then you're adding on another uh, 10, 15 miles to get down into the brush to the area of the Jordan. 
where Jesus was. So Bethlehem, I see Bethlehem down there. So yep. how far is that away from Jerusalem? Bethlehem is uh, about seven miles. So Jerusalem's seven. right here. This is about seven. And this where's is, Bethany? And Bethany is, uh, I can zoom it in again. So if you're standing in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, it's about a mile and a half. And what happens is, is you go down into the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and just on the other side of the Mount of Olives is Bethany. And this map doesn't show it accurately. So but the, that, road, the road that you're talking about goes through Bethany or no? Right next to it. Yep. And if you take that road today, you'll go right next to it. But you won't stop there. Um, the reason why is because that's in Palestinian, that's West Bank territory now. And people, there will still be tourists that will go there because they want to see the house of Lazarus, right? They want to see the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus was a well-known man. Is it there still? Uh, well, they'll tell you that it is and charge you for that. <laughs> so, most of these areas, like where was Jesus buried? Where, what's the, the tomb of Jesus? So, um, we're going to be doing a trip to um, Israel in uh, April of 2016. So, I'm announcing that now. I'm going to put up the posters and give information on that. And there will be a time of teaching leading up to that, so map work and stuff. But when we go there, you'll have opportunity to see some of these places. They have the garden tomb, which is a first century style tomb. That they say, well, Jesus was buried here. And they'll say, this is where Golgotha was and all these different things. Actually, what happened was when Christianity became the state religion, so under Constantine, about 300 years A.D., um, what occurred is when it became a state religion, they started venerating all these sites. So what they would do is they would, to preserve them, they would completely destroy them and build uh, a church on top of it. Um, and that was preservation. Right? Today, our understanding of preservation is you leave it in its natural state. That's not what they did. So even where Golgotha was... Um, that where Christ was crucified, and they have reconstructed uh, where the wall would have been uh, in the time of Jesus, such that he was crucified outside the, the gate of the city. Um, today, what they did is in the in the third and fourth century, they or in the the, the fourth century, they um, leveled that, and all that was left was the bedrock, the base rock that was there, and. They uh, built a, a church on top of it, and they have a hole in the floor. So you can go there, and you can put your hand through the hole and touch the rock. Right? That's not that's not the way we understand uh, this this time frame. So even though we'll have opportunity to go there, some of these sites, like Lazarus's tomb, is probably not Lazarus's tomb, or if it is in Lazarus's tomb, which it would have been completely. They built a church there, so. Um, you'll see a church and you'll say, that doesn't look like a tomb. And then they'll show you a tomb off to the side and say, oh yeah, this was a first century tomb. Um, we'll call it Lazarus's tomb, so it's not. I know that's a long answer to your question, but wanted to kind of whet your appetite a little bit. It's only about a mile and a half from uh, the, the temple area in Jerusalem. Uh, it's, you can't quite see it because it's over the crest of the hill. Uh, you go right by it today, so it's still there, and they still... Um, this was such a significant event that they still uh, memorialize it to this day. So that's the, the setting where this has taken place for scene one, is that Jesus had uh, heard 
that Lazarus up here in Bethany, um, while he was down here at the Jordan River, probably 30 miles away, that Lazarus was sick. And most likely, at the point that that messenger left, Lazarus was already at the point of death and probably died shortly thereafter. So it took a good day, maybe a little bit longer, to get down to where Jesus was. So Lazarus was already dead for a day. And when Jesus heard this, he knew what the state of affairs was. Right? So what did he say? When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, either Jesus was misinformed in his mind, and he thought, oh, Lazarus is going to get better, it's okay. Or, he knew that Lazarus was already dead, but that death was not the end. That he had a, a bigger point to make. And that that's what God's trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that death is not the end. Physical death in this world is not the end. But rather, there was going to be a demonstration of what God was doing in the world, what what Christ was sent for, and that that would display the glory of God in his redemptive work. Right? So that's what Jesus understands. And I say he understands this because as... uh, he gets, he gets the message and he says, okay, we're going to hang out a couple more days. We're going to make sure he's really dead. <laughs> right? And they, they did. They had this thing about what makes a person really dead. Well, part of the teaching of the day was that, um, and you can read about this in extra biblical literature. This isn't just something that we suppose. This was actually what was believed and, and published in the day for those that were educated. Uh, that when a person died, their, their spirit or soul would hang about for up to three days to see if they could re-enter the body, that there could be a resuscitation, right? But at the end of three days, they were really dead, you know? All you could do is go through their pockets for loose change, according to the princess. <laughs> all, all the way dead? All the way mostly dead. dead. Not just mostly dead. All the way dead. And so Jesus hanging out an extra two days was actually very significant, right? And at the end of that, it's like, okay, it's, it's very clear. On the first day, they would have put Lazarus in the tomb. So by the time the messenger arrived where Jesus was at, Lazarus was already wrapped in the, um, the clothing that they would put him in, the wrapping with the spices, and they would wrap their head so that their mouth wouldn't pop open and all these different things. He was already wrapped up and placed in the tomb. And and Jesus knew this, right? So he'd been in there for three days, and at the end of that, Jesus says, okay, let's head up up, uh, to Bethany. It says Judea. What's the difference? Pardon? It says Judea. What's the difference? So this whole area is uh, Judea. Right? It was a tribe of of Judah. Right? So um, down here is Hebron. You go a little bit further south. And so the, when we look at how the tribes were laid out, um, there was uh, the tribe of Judah and Simeon was in this area, a little bit further down here, but 
kind of encircled by, by Judah. Um, all the other tribes had been um, in the dispersion. When the Assyrians came in, they conquered them, they drug them off to other places, they brought other people in and resettled the land. Those tribes never came back. But when uh, the tribe of Judah, when Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians, um, and they took off the remnants of the Judeans uh, to Babylon, they actually came back to Judah. Uh, and we read about that uh, in the books that follow uh, the account of the captivity in Babylon. So, and that's where we get the word Jews from, is that the remnant that came back from Babylon were called Jews. And so the when he says going back to Judea, he's talking about coming back to this area. Um, not to hang out down here, but to come to Jerusalem. And I'll expand a little bit more on that when we find out where he actually ends up. But so he's going to do this 25-mile hike up the hill, um, and he's going to do it in a day. And he tells his disciples what he's going to do. And this is all still the first scene. It says... Uh, in verse 11 it says, he said, after, uh, he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. So they're still thinking, well, Jesus hung out an extra two days because he thinks he's just, just sick and he needs his rest. And, uh, and you know, he needs his rest. That'll, that'll make him better. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So, clearly, you see the omniscience of God displayed here. Um, no, a, an additional runner hadn't come down and told Jesus secretly that Lazarus had died. Jesus just knew this is what was going on. It was all part of the plan of God that... Um, Lazarus would die and that God's um, explanation of the enemy of death would be made clear and his remedy of uh, the result of death would be made clear and that Jesus knew this because he had that omniscient view that God has. So you see the, uh, one of the attributes of God displayed here in God's omniscience. He says, no, he's dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. So the whole point of this is so that people will be able to make that, that trip from head knowledge to heart knowledge. That they'll actually be able to um, respond in faith. He says, but let's go to him. Therefore Thomas, which in Hebrew is uh, a word that means twin. Uh, and then he says, oh, it's also called twin in the Greek which is called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. That's, so, with, that's with Jesus. Pardon? To die with Jesus. To die with Jesus. So there's a statement made, right? So the reason that they're down in this area down here is because they were trying to kill him. And just being with him, being associated with him, meant that you were, you were subject to be caught and killed too. Um, so there was a cost of being a disciple. 
And, uh, and that cost, that risk, would go up the closer you were with Jesus. And Thomas was one of the twelve. You don't read much about Thomas in the other Gospels, but you read about Thomas here. And he's an interesting guy. In that this can either be a statement of uh, cynicism, and he's being sarcastic, or it could be a statement of faith, that he's willing to go the distance. Now, he didn't understand what was going on. I'd say none of these guys understood what was really going on. And that the evidence they didn't understand what was going on is that they didn't understand what was happening with Lazarus. It's like, can he really be raised from the dead? What are you talking about? I mean, you could have prevented his death. And all of them believe that. But could you actually do something about the problem of death once it's occurred? None of them believe that. In, in a true sense. You may have had a head nod saying, yep, God can do, can do that. But really, does God do that? And Thomas, he's saying, you know, I, I don't get it, but I'm with you. I'm all in. No doubt the closer you get to Jerusalem, the higher likelihood of being killed is. Yes. And they're going to be within a mile and a half of Jerusalem. Just over the hill and down is where Jesus is going to go on Palm Sunday. That first day of the week, that we call Palm Sunday, um, is when he crossed over from Bethany, probably hanging out in this area of Martha, Mary, and, and Lazarus, um, and then going down uh, that Mount of Olives and ascending up through the eastern gate into the temple. So it's not very far from where those that are trying to kill him are. Um, and so they all recognize the, the, uh, the threat both to Jesus and to themselves. And yet, at the end of this, what you see is, I'm in. Let's go. If it's to our death, so be it. Um, so, I find that remarkable because, in many ways, these these guys did not understand, but they trusted. This is the doubting Thomas, right? This is the doubting Thomas. Right? So that's why some would say, well, it's got to be sarcastic. It's got to be cynical. Where he's saying, yeah, we're all going to die. We're all in, you know, uh, in, in, uh, in, in sarcasm. Because this is the one later who says, unless I see the print of the nail in his hand, put my, my hand in that hand, I won't believe it. Right? Now, that just means that Thomas is from Missouri. Right? <laughs> Show me things. Right? He needed to, he needed to um, when it came to resurrection, he needed to see it to believe it. So it's very important that Thomas actually see it. Why do you think Thomas was called out among all of the, the twelve? Peter was there. Peter's one of these guys that he would speak up, you know, really quick and say, yeah, we're right behind you, you know. Let's go take on the Romans. Uh, let's go take on the Sanhedrin. That's Peter. In fact, he even snuck in to when Jesus was on trial. We know the story of Peter, but we don't know much about Thomas. Thomas is one, he had to see it to believe it, and yet he said, I trust you. You know, even if it costs me my life, I'll be there. That's remarkable. So it says, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. This is the beginning of the scene too. 
Scene one is that dialogue that occurs down here. Scene two, they've made this trip all the way up that ascent. And by the way, this is a very significant descent. You're going from uh, the, uh, 1,300 feet below sea level, 1,200 feet below sea level, um, to about um, 1,200 feet or 1,700 feet. I can't remember. I'd have to look at my elevations again. Uh, so above sea level. So you're gaining a lot of elevation um, over this long walk. So it's a, it's a hard walk. They, they get there in a the day, and they found out that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. So that magical three days of resuscitation had passed. So what happens? Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So because Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were well known, a lot of folks came from Jerusalem, did that little mile and a half stretch, a little over that, to their house to be part of this wedding. Or not wedding, this, this funeral. Right? So this was a big deal. They would have seven days of mourning, and all of your relatives and distant relatives and everybody would come in, because that's the way the community was connected back then. Uh, and we don't understand that really well. Because our culture is not tribal in, in the way that we organize community. And so, but these, these people were. So everybody's coming in to console and participate in these seven days of mourning. And the seven days of mourning are like wild and crazy. People are just screaming out at the top of their lungs, wearing their you know, funeral clothes and uh, crying and weeping. It's a very loud, showy thing. But it's there to uh, both memorialize the person who's passed and to comfort those that have experienced the loss. So that's what these seven days of mourning were about. So they're right smack dab in the middle of the seven days of mourning when Jesus shows up. And uh, there's one other thing I want to say about that. Why would, why would this be uh, significant that an, a large group of people would come? One, there's that tribal, but also Martha... Mary and Lazarus were somewhat well-known. Um, you read about Mary in other places in the New Testament um, and the, the uh, great conversion that she had, but there's uh, a little lesser known uh, was Mary's and Martha's and Lazarus's father, who was uh, Simon the leper, who was healed of his leprosy. So there's, there was a history of interaction with this family and Jesus. Jesus actually um, would reach out to people that were unclean, like Mary, like Simon, like Lazarus, and would heal them, would make them whole. And that that making them whole was more than just physically whole. He actually, his, his goal was not just to heal the flesh, but to heal the whole person. And you see that in Mary's remarkable turn in following it at Jesus' feet and using her own hair to spread the ointment in preparation for his burial. And that she's actually memorialized for that in the New Testament. People will remember this woman because of this, her dedication to the Lord. So um, they were somewhat uh, known in this area as being a remarkable family to begin with. And they didn't necessarily have, they had somewhat of a nefarious past. So it's not because they were um, great uh, religious zealots or Pharisees 
that people knew them. It was because of what Jesus had done in this family's life that people knew them. And Jesus actually probably went to their home frequently. Right? He went and ate there, and it's like, this was one of the complaints against Jesus. It's like, you hang out with sinners. You go and you have dinner with them. Dude, how can you be clean if you're hanging out with people that are unclean? And Jesus said, being with the unclean does not make me unclean. Rather, it makes those that are unclean clean. The leper was healed by the very touch of Jesus. And that is unusual. Now, here you have a guy that's dead. Right? What is death to the Jews? It is the paramount uncleanness. You can't get anywhere near this guy. Let alone open his tomb. Or touch him. Right? And yet Jesus is going to command that he be touched and the grave clothes removed. Right? So you see there's very significant symbolism about who Jesus is in this account. Anyway, he comes, he got to the tomb, it had already been four days, Bethany was near Jerusalem, so a lot of people had come to console the family concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I always think that that's so bold of her. Expand on that. It's almost like, it's almost demeaning to Jesus. Like, if you would have been here. Well, she's, uh, she's expressing what she believed about Jesus. Mm. Right? <clears throat> that if Jesus had been there in proximity that Lazarus' death would have been prevented. Mm-hmm. right? And, and she even goes on to say, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, it's an expression of faith of what she thinks she mm-hmm. knows about Jesus. That if you can be in his presence, mm-hmm. um, you will somehow be uh, delivered from infirmity. Mm-hmm. right? That he would, he would prevent that which would naturally occur as a consequence of sin. Jesus is going to say more than that, though. Mm-hmm. Is this the first person he's raised from the dead at this time? Uh, actually not. So there was the... But they weren't really dead. They were just kind well, of dead. There wasn't the... Uh, they were really dead. They're, they, they, uh, they were more symbolic, so there was the uh, widow's son at Nain which, if you go back and you compare one of the miracles of Elisha, it happened of a raising of a widow's son. It occurred geographically in the same area. So, in those instances, what was being communicated was about um, uh, the nature of Messiah. That the Messiah, um, we understand as the king, right, the son of man, which means it's a reference to the king in Daniel 7.13, but we also understand that Messiah is um, the perfect priest. Um, and he's also the perfect prophet. So prophet, priest, and king. When we look at how God inter- interacts with humanity, he interacts through three agencies. Um, and those agencies were first the priesthood, and that goes all the way back to Melchizedek, right? 
And, uh, and Melchizedek was both a priest and a king and a prophet. And so what happens is, is when you take it all the way back um, and how God interacts with humanity and the promise that he's given to uh, humanity, um, we see that unpacked for us in Hebrews, that Messiah is both prophet, priest, and king. Right? So in those other miracles that Jesus was doing, he was um, helping people understand to know that Messiah has this role not just as the conquering king, the one who was going to overthrow the Romans, um, but he was the fulfillment of that prophecy about being the, the prophet, priest, and king. Whereas here, I think there's a different emphasis. And, and had that widow's son been dead for four days? Not for four days. Okay, so he wasn't really dead. Well, I think that... But that I think that's well, the difference, right? Yeah, there, there's a difference, but it isn't that that was a resuscitation. Nobody believed that that was a resuscitation when it happened. I think you're getting this mixed up with Princess Bride. Well, no, I mean, but there is a, there is a significant point being made here in that it's a, it's a big deal that he was dead for four days and that there would be, it would be irrefutable that he was really dead, that it wasn't a res, resuscitation. Um, and the reason why is because it's not about him being like Elisha or the perfect Elisha uh, or Elijah. I and mean, both of them had instances where they were doing those kind of prophetic words. Um, but it's about <clears throat> him uh, as God's son having power over life and death. And I say that because of what Jesus' response is. He says, you know, all you had to do was be here and my brother wouldn't have died. Well, I hate to tell you, but Jesus could have healed him from Jericho. He didn't need, he didn't need to actually show up. And we have evidence of that because he healed people at a distance just by his word. We already had that shared with us back in chapter 2. I think this is a statement of faith on the part of both Mary and Martha. I mean, Lord, if you been here, my brother would not have died. Um, I think it's a statement that, that if he was there, he could have healed him. So it's kind of a statement of faith, but regardless, it's pee and repeat. So right. verse 21, it's, and then in verse 32, it's exactly, right. they both say exactly. Both, both Martha and Mary had an exactly. understanding of who Messiah was that meant that, one, he had to physically be there, and two, he had to act preemptively. But they had no concept that, uh, I mean, people still died that were raised, right? People still died that had been healed of leprosy or demon possession or whatever the malady was, infirmity, you know, where they were crippled. They still died, right? And, they, and their understanding was, oh, well, it's great. It makes our life a little bit better. We're not going to suffer as much. But in the end, everybody dies. And so Jesus then makes a statement to challenge that. Sure enough, in the end, everybody dies. <clears throat> so he, he's going to challenge that. He says, <clears throat> Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So he's teasing out what she really believes and understands. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. <laughs> so this was a wide belief that people would die, be buried, and that they didn't really know where they went, but that they were in a place 
of, uh, of Sheol where there would be, maybe there was some consciousness, maybe there was no consciousness. They didn't know, but they were uh, in a disembodied state, largely unconscious, and that at the end of time, end of all time, they would be raised from the dead. So they did believe in uh, a resurrection to eternal life. But they didn't really, they didn't hold that as anything that impacted their life. It's like, yeah, 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 that's going to happen. I understand that. You know, end of time, that's so many billions of years past me, I don't know. I don't care. I'm glad that's there, but that doesn't affect me today. So what Jesus said to her is he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And I want to point out the definite article is used here. He's saying he is the resurrection. He is the life. Whatever life is, he's it. Whatever resurrection is, he's it. And he's in her presence. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. <clears throat> Here he's talking about a future. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He's talking about the resurrection. But then he goes further. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He's talking about the life. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about a present reality. He's not talking about a future. There's a very distinct thing that he's saying here that's different than anything that's ever been said or understood before. That sure enough, there is a resurrection that we are intended by God in creation to have um, a physical part in creation. We are his creature. He created us. We have uh, corporeality, as they would say, right? We have flesh. We have blood. But we're more than that. It says when God breathed into man the breath of life, man became a living soul. So we're dirt clods that in the value of the dirt, you're worth less than a dollar in the minerals that are in your body. But in the value of your life, you are infinitely precious. And you experience that because you want that life, right? People don't want to die. And what he's saying is that he is that life. And everyone who believes in him will never die. This is a present reality. So that means if you are in Christ today and you have his life in you, you are in him, you will never die. Regardless of what happens to this physical reality. That's why we believe that to be present with the Lord is something that we already have, whether it's in this world or the next. When we die, we are immediately in his presence because we never left it. That can change the way that you live your life doesn't mean that you're going to go get a dirt bike and ride carelessly on the hills because you're now indestructible. No, you are destructible in the sense of your corrupted physical body, but you are indestructible in the eternal life that you have in him. And that ultimately the corruptible flesh is going to be replaced with incorruptible flesh. We read that 
through Revelation in Corinthians. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's both. He is the resurrection and the life. And he's going to, to challenge what people believe about that, including these closest believers. Because Martha says, he says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she's making a good confession, just like Peter made a good confession, just like Thomas made a good confession. She's making a good confession, but there's still a misunderstanding, and I'm totally out of time. The misunderstanding is when that stone goes to get rolled back, she says, wait! He stinks! He's really dead! And Jesus is going to challenge that he's really dead. What does it mean to be really dead? It means to be apart from Christ. So let's go ahead and, and close here. And I challenge you with this. I mean, ponder this this week. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And that is what they call an emphatic uh, negation. In other means, it's like, never, no way, no how. You will never die. And that is a current promise to you right now. It's not a future. Let's go ahead and close. Lord, thank you for opportunity to, um, to look at what uh, John so carefully recorded for us, giving us incredible detail that we know that this is uh, a true account of what happened and that, um, that you uh, worked in John's life in such a way uh, that he could understand these profound truths to record them for us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to wrestle through and understand these things and truly believe, believe in a way that changes the way that we live, that we might remain in you, Lord might dwell in you and the, and the provision that you've given for us, Lord. Uh, Lord, we thank you that this is a present reality as well as a future reality. Lord, um, we thank you for this in the presence of all of the challenges in our life. And we've got lots of challenges, but we know that you are intimately concerned. Whether we see you physically in our presence or we know that you were here um, through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that you are present. You will never leave us or abandon us. Um, Lord, in our trials, remind us of this. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this, for your provision, for your protection, for your tender care, um, and that you would give your life in service for all of humanity and, and me, Lord, and all the means in this room. Lord, we thank you for this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray.